CME for this podcast is available at AUA University, auau.auanet.org. Support has been provided by an independent educational grant from AbbVie, Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Genentech, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, and Sanofi Genzyme. Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and, um, and get started. But again, it gives me great pleasure now to introduce Dr. Larry Karsh. Larry and I have uh, been fortunate to be friends for quite a number of years. Uh, we've done this course before. He's a great speaker, very knowledgeable, uh, and uh, runs the um, uh, Advanced Prostate Cancer Program in uh, uh, Urology Center of Colorado. I've been, I visited his center, a fantastic place. He does a lot of clinical trials. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy his presentation. Larry? Thank you, Judd, for that nice introduction. Um, but it's uh, pleased to be back up here on stage with my esteemed and, and uh, uh, admired uh, colleague, Dr. Judd Mall. Uh, this is, I think, our fifth year of doing this program. And so there have been a lot of changes that have taken place over these years. Uh, and so, as Dr. Mall said, I'm the co-director of our advanced therapeutics clinic at, uh, at the Urology Center of Colorado, and I see my co-director back there, Dr. Dave Reagan. Raise your hand. He's, uh, we run that clinic together, and uh, so it's a two-man job. So what I'm going to do is, uh, these are my disclosures. And what I'm going to do is focus on the oral therapies for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So since 2015, we've had a number of, of new therapies now uh, in the metastatic hormone-sensitive uh, prostate cancer space. It really started with uh, docetaxel and uh, for, per the charted study. Uh, so Dr. Sweeney will be here and he'll talk about the, uh, the uh, docetaxel and charted, but uh, what I'm going to do is talk about the orals. Now, is there a difference between de novo and progressive metastatic prostate cancer? So when we're talking about de novo, we're meaning these patients walk in the door, they have metastatic disease, they've never been treated for prostate cancer before. And then evolving or progressive uh, metastatic cancer are patients that have been treated with uh, surgery or radiation and now they've become metastatic. And so there's been an intrinsic belief that maybe the, the uh, de novo is a more aggressive disease, but there isn't a lot of data out there. This is a retrospective study uh, in 2017, and it just shows that uh, patients with de novo disease do worse. And so let's look at the characteristics of the charted as well as latitude and stampede patients. So charted is, is a volume or burden of disease uh, definition. So we have a presence of visceral mets or four or greater bone lesions with at least one outside of the axial skeleton. And then of course the alternative is the low volume disease. Latitude is a little different definition. It's a, uh, it combines a pathologic uh, definition, uh, pathologic risk with volume to come up with a uh, a pathologic risk uh, definition. And so 
what you need is uh, two, at least two of these high-risk factors, uh, Gleason score of eight or greater, greater than uh, or uh, three or greater bone lesions and measurable visceral metastases. And so this is really similar to the high volume group in charted. Now Stampede is different. Stampede includes not only uh, M, uh, M1 but also high risk M0 patients. So if they have node positive localized uh, regional lymph node or high risk locally advanced uh, disease or metastatic uh, and you need at least two of the three, a T3, T4 lesion uh, with Gleason score of 8 to 10 and a PSA of 40 or greater. So latitude uh, was reported a few years ago and we had 1,199 patients who were randomized one-to-one -one, uh, and the criteria, as I just mentioned, were the high-risk uh, features. And it, the patients were randomized to get ADT plus or minus abiraterone and prednisone. And it had co-primary endpoints of overall survival and, and uh, radiographic progression-free survival. And uh, there's a number of secondary endpoints which it met and we'll talk about. But in the first interim analysis, we saw there's uh, quite compelling uh, that there's a benefit for uh, the combination uh, both in overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. And you can see these significant uh, hazard ratios. And then the final analysis was just presented at uh, ASCO GU in February. And again, we see the uh, benefit of the combination, uh, and it goes through uh, for four and a half years, and it was 16.8 months longer than ADT alone. So it confirmed that Abby, the combination of ADT and Abby, uh, is very effective. And then looking at the secondary endpoints, it met all of these endpoints, time to pain progression, skeletal related events, chemotherapy initiation. And there was another endpoint at the end here, time to PFS2. So you're starting to see that on more and more of these studies. And what that is, it's the randomization uh, to progression on a, sexant, a second or subsequent therapy. And, you know, we've always wondered, uh, are we creating a prostate cancer beast that's resistant to our therapies when we start them on a very effective uh, first therapy? And I think this shows that, uh, that there, there is an effect and it is long-lasting and you can get benefit from a second agent and there was a 53-month uh, versus 30-month uh, median uh, uh, improvement in, in, uh, in progression. And this is kind of a breakdown between high and low volume. So this is all a charted definition. And what they did was looked at it and, and found that uh, there is certainly a benefit in the high volume patients but really not so much yet in the, uh, the low volume patient. They didn't really find a benefit. So uh, I want you to hold that thought because I'm going to come back to that in another slide. But there were no new uh, safety signals uh, for abiraterone and latitude. These are the typical things that we see, hypertension, hypokalemia, uh, and uh, the fluid retention. And this is due to the mineral corticoid effect. And then we can have transaminitis. Uh, and so there were no new safety signals. Now, Stampede had similar, uh, it was a similar trial design, 
And they uh, also found uh, a hazard ratio of 0.63, so there was a survival benefit using Abby in the hormone-sensitive space. And uh, they did not find a uh, benefit in the non-metastatic disease, but there was a benefit in overall survival. And that result uh, that they had for overall survival almost mirrored exactly what was seen in latitude. So as far as looking at the guidelines, uh, ASCO came out with this guideline in 2018. ADT plus docetaxel or ABI in newly diagnosed metastatic non-castrate um, prostate cancer patients offers a survival benefit as compared to ADT alone. And the strongest evidence of benefit with docetaxel is in men with de novo high volume metastatic disease. And similar survival benefits are seen using ABI in high risk patients per latitude criteria in the uh, metastatic population in Stampede as well. And ADT plus ABI or, and ADT plus DOSI have not been compared, and so it's not known if some men will benefit more from one regimen as opposed to the other. I think that uh, a study like this is only going to be done in a cooperative uh, group. There's not going to be, uh, you know, manufacturers that are going to uh, do this kind of a study. And then we also have to take into consideration patients' fitness for chemotherapy, uh, patient comorbidities, toxicities, quality of life, drug availability, and cost really should be considered in that decision. Uh, so that is it better to give somebody six cycles of docetaxel as opposed to uh, abiraterone until they uh, progress? And, you know, these are the kind of things that we have to take into consideration when prescribing these therapies. Now, this was an interesting paper by the Stampede Group at uh, ESMO in Munich in, in uh, November 2018. So we know the benefit of using ABI in high-risk uh, disease. What about there's an evolving uncertainty as to what to do with patients with low-risk or volume disease? And so they asked, do low-risk metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients benefit from ABI uh, and uh, ADT, and you know, in, in the UK, we say prednisone, they use prednisolone. But what they did was, they went back and looked through the charted data for the M1 uh, stampede patients, and they stratified them retrospectively into high and low risk, and the investigators were blinded to the treatment arm. And the primary stratification was per latitude criteria, and they looked at an exploratory stratification for, per charted criteria. And this, this was the study. Uh, so they went back to, and looked at the patients that were enrolled in the uh, Stampede trial. And they did this retrospective analysis. And they had about 900 evaluable patients after they excluded a number that, uh, that couldn't be uh, uh, looked at in this study. And what they uh, found was that when they looked at the latitude risk stratification, you can see that there's a benefit in, regardless of high or low volume, there's a benefit in all of these outcomes, overall survival, failure-free survival, skeletal-related events, progression-free survival, and prostate cancer-specific death. So these were significant hazard ratios that they uh, came up with, and 
so you can see that there is uh, a benefit uh, when looking at it per uh, latitude. And then when we looked at the charted volume criteria, Again, similar results. They found that regardless of whether these patients were uh, high or low volume, they had a benefit uh, with the combination therapy. Now, the study did have some limitations as it was a retrospective analysis. Uh, they, um, you know, there can be some misclassification when you're trying to classify between uh, the charted and latitude. Uh, and there, this study may have been underpowered, but in any event, their recommendation was that all patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer should be considered for ABI and PRED, uh, the uh, ABI and ADT, the combination, as a treatment option, irrespective of risk uh, or uh, volume classification. So. You know, I think we have to ask ourselves now, is this the new standard of care? Are we going to treat all these low-volume patients now with uh, ABI and, and ADT? Now, ARCHES was a uh, similar, addresses a similar question uh, as far as hormone-sensitive uh, metastatic disease, and they substituted enzalutamide. Now, there were some differences here, and that was the, uh, that the the primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival. It didn't include overall survival. Overall survival is a uh, secondary endpoint. And they did stratify between high and low volume as well as uh, patients uh, having been treated with docetaxel. Uh, and they were allowed to be treated with docetaxel within uh, six months of the time of ADT start. And so this was very compelling for the primary endpoint of RPFS. You can see a hazard ratio of 0.39 with a 61% reduction in the risk of progression or death. And it was also uh, significant for the secondary endpoints of time to PSA progression or time to uh, initiation of new anti-neoplastic therapy. The overall survival is not mature yet. They only had 25% of the required 342 events uh, in order to uh, uh, come up with the overall uh, survival, but I think that that will be coming. And regardless of whether patients had high or low volume disease or whether or not they had docetaxel, they still had a benefit that you can see on this uh, forest plot. Now, AEs, uh, there were no new signals as far as enzalutamide. Uh, the seizure uh, was pretty similar in both, both groups. Uh, we've had issues of hypertension, ischemic heart disease, other cardiovascular events, uh, fatigue, fall fractures. These things were all uh, expressed in this uh, study, but there were no new safety signals. You had a little higher incidence in the enzalutamide group versus the placebo. But we have some other ongoing trials addressing the same question. Uh, we have Arisons, which looks at ADT plus docetaxel, plus or minus darolutamide. And I think Dr. Maul is going to talk about darolutamide, but it's a newer antigen receptor antagonist. They presented the results of this at GU-ASCO in the Aramis trial in the non-metastatic 
castration-resistant prostate cancer space and was found to increase to uh, improve metastasis-free survival. Uh, now we're looking at it in the uh, metastatic hormone sensitive space and that, they, that study is closed to enrollment uh, but it will probably read out in August of 2022. Similar kind of a trial design looking at apalutamide. So ADT uh, plus or minus apalutamide in the Titan trial. The Titan trial is closed to enrollment and there's going to be a readout here at uh, uh, at ASCO in June of uh, this year, and so we're going to find out what the readout was on that. Uh, I imagine it's going to be positive because in our trial they uh, they switched all patients over to uh, uh, to apalutamide. So this is just to give you a sense of where we're going uh, or where this is all headed. There's a charted two trial, and these are for patients that had docetaxel when they were initially diagnosed with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And now uh, these are gonna, we're going to look at patients who progress after uh, they've uh, had that. And so they're looking at ADT plus abiraterone plus or minus cabazitaxel, six cycles of cabazitaxel. So we're going to be looking at uh, at these combination therapies in patients who've already progressed uh, to metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. So thank you, and I think what we'll do is move on to the next module. And, okay, okay, thank you. Well, first, I, I apologize for walking back and forth across. Uh, so uh, Dr. Sweeney, uh, we were a little bit stressed because Dr. Sweeney's not here, and uh, apparently his cell phone died or something, and, he's on, and, and uh, his alarm didn't go off, but he's on his way. So we're gonna, I'm going to uh, adjust things up a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, non-metastatic. I wanted to wait till more people got into the room uh, to make sure we had our full um, contingent, but... Um, just uh, wanted to uh, mention that the AUA wanted to make a special announcement to make sure everyone uh, rates these courses, you know, whether it be this course or the other courses you're attending. And so um, the, uh, please rate the course. And uh, if you do rate the course, you're entered into win, uh, let's see, a all-expense-paid trip to Paris. Oh, no, uh, a all-expense-paid trip to Washington, D.C. for next year's AUA. So please fill out the, the evaluation. Um, what I'd like to do just in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes is um, just go over non-metastatic CRPC. And um, I wanted to make sure I gave the key teaching points or the key bullet points right from the get-go here. And um, so... There were no FDA-approved agents before February 14, 2018. So as of Valentine's Day in 2018, uh, we got a Valentine's Day gift that apalutamide, uh, which trade name is called Orlita, was FDA-approved. And then uh, later that summer or fall of 2018, enzalutamide was also approved in this space. So currently we have two FDA-approved agents in non-metastatic CRPC. Uh, Larry mentioned the third agent is on the way, darolutamide, uh, and I'll show those slides in a minute, reported out at GUASCO and is um, being evaluated by the FDA currently. Most of these patients are in urology practices. So that's the, um, 
the key teaching point as well that these are in urology practices, but sometimes they're more they're difficult to. Probably the biggest problem with this space is the ability to uh, identify them uh, because they are there's no ICD-10 code for non-metastatic CRPC. So any of you in the audience who are working in this space know it can be challenging to identify these patients. It's to do database queries and so forth, and. Um, these agents are probably are going to be moved to even earlier stage disease. As, as uh, Dr. Karsh just mentioned, you know, all of these agents are being studied even before they get to non-metastatic castrate, so this space will change even further. Um, all three agents generally are safe and all delay metastasis by an average of about two years. Disease-specific and overall survival is not yet proven. Uh, although darolutamide seems to be the, maybe perhaps the closest to reaching that end point, but my suspicion is they'll all probably eventually meet this end point. And the side effects are fatigue, falls, bone fracture, seizures, rash, and hypothyroidism. Although for the urologists in the room who, or the clinicians who have used these drugs, I would say they're certainly easier than using the oral agents for kidney cancer. And for the oncologists in the room, they're easier to give and, uh, than many of the other oral oncolytics we're using for other stage diseases. So I would say those, you know, if you don't remember anything about, about this space, that's the key, that's the key slide. Um, apalutamide was um, the first drug approved, and this is uh, the Spartan trial, and this is, we see the, the New England Journal of Medicine uh, and the investigators. This was Matt, Matt Smith and Fred Saad were the main investigators on this study. And um, again, this is a, uh, it depends on how, I've seen it both ways. Some people refer to enzalutamide and apalutamide as third generation non-steroidal oral antiandrogens. Other people refer to them as second generation. Now, I'm not sure if, it, if that may be esoteric, but in the um, Journal Urology Review article that uh, recently came out, Dave Crawford was the first author on that. Uh, this, these agents are referred to as third generation. In the, in the review article, they refer to flutamide and nalutamide as first generation, bicalutamide as a second generation, and then the two current agents, uh, apalutamide and enzalutamide, as third generation. And then it's going to be debatable uh, how different darolutamide is. I've heard some people claim that that might be a fourth generation because it's slight mechanism of action. Other people say it's sim similar enough that it should be continued a second or third generation. So, uh, but you'll see this in the literature, these sometimes referred to as different generations. As I said, uh, apalutamide was approved in February 14, 2018, a two-year metastasis-free survival in high-risk patients who have M0, and they defined high-risk as less than 10-month PSA doubling time. Uh, overall cancer-specific survival benefit not yet proven. Uh, the quality of life endpoints have been ma maintained compared to placebo. There's a, some secondary analysis looking at FACT-P and other quality of life endpoints. And I think the key teaching point, in general, the quality of life of these patients is maintained uh, as compared to the arm that got placebo. Uh, sites of metastatic pro progression are similar between drug and placebo. In other words, when patients invariably progress on apalutamide or enzalutamide, but in this study where they looked at this, they generally saw that the sites of metastasis were similar, meaning if a guy got this drug for two years and then went on to metastatic disease, it's not like you totally cranked up the rate of visceral metastasis. It increased a little bit, but not a massive difference. 
the falls and fractures were 16% and 12% of patients treated with apalutamide compared to 9% and 7% of patients treated with placebo, respectively. And seizure occurred in two patients, 0.2%. And uh, obviously these drugs are very ex expensive, but in general there's good insurance coverage, uh, coverage by Medicare and, and private payers. Uh, this just shows the study schema for Spartan, and uh, thematically all three of these agents in this space, uh, the trials were designed very similarly, but basically ap uh, apalutamide versus placebo. And in all these trials, the primary endpoint is metastasis-free survival, with uh, overall and some of the other endpoints as secondary. And again, all of these agents in this space are, the, are, are approved based on metastasis-free survival. What about side effects? So rash. So the, 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 the unique side effect of apalutamide is a rash, and it can be macular or maculopapular. In the study, it occurred in 24, overall 24% of patients treated with apalutamide versus 6% of patients with placebo, although if you look at grade three, which is defined as covering 30% of the body surface area, that was reported with 5% of apalutamide and 0.3% of placebo. And this rash occurred at a medium of 82 days, and it resolved in 81% of patients with a median of 60 days. 4% uh, of patients received, only 4% received systemic corticosteroids, and rash recurred at approximately half of the patients who were rechallenged. Now, in my own experience, and maybe Larry uh, and Chris can comment on this, uh, I've only actually had this one time so far in about uh, eight to nine patients that I've treated over the last year. And uh, my patient, it, I, I discontinued the drug for about two weeks and then reintroduced the drug at a lower dose, and, and he's done fine. Most of the time it's manageable, and again, if you're a urologist who's, you do need to mention this, be aware of this, it's something that can happen, but in my experience, it's certainly not a showstopper or anything major. Uh, so I wouldn't, if you're a urologist, I wouldn't be scared away from using of the drug just be, because of this. Another side effect that was identified is uh, hypothyroidism. And this was reported for 8% of patients treated with apalutamide and 2% of patients treated with placebo based on the assessment of thyroid stimulating hormone done every four months. Elevated TSH occurred in 25% of patients treated with the drug and 7% of patients treated with placebo. The median onset was 113 days. There were no grade three or four adverse reactions. Uh, thyroid replacement therapy, when clinically indi indicated, should be, dosed, uh, should be initiated or dose-adjusted. But the FDA did not mandate testing. So in my practice, um, I don't know, everyone handles this differently. I don't measure t thyroid levels pre-treatment, and I haven't measured them during follow-up. Uh, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying not to, trying to keep things simple. When the FDA approved it, they didn't require any testing, so I don't do any testing. Again, uh, Larry or Chris may want to comment on this. I know some medical oncologists are maybe a little more cautious, but uh, I have not uh, measured this routinely. Uh, this just shows um, uh, some of the, uh, the, the survival endpoints in the trial, and uh, this, was, this was really the key slide showing the metastasis-free survival benefit, um, and, and uh, on average it was about two years. And 
uh, we don't have yet uh, overall survival that's statistically significant. So here we have apalutamide versus placebo. You can see the other plots. Um, so I guess the, the good news is there's no question that this delays metastasis-free survival. There's a big impact on PSA progression, uh, but we're waiting for overall survival in this agent as well as all the other agents in this space. Uh, I'll skip that. And then moving on to PROSPER, this was the enzalutamide trial, also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, Maha Hussein is the first author on this paper. This is also a second, and second or third generation oral nonsteroidal antiandrogen. Many of us have been familiar with enzalutamide. It's been FDA approved for a number of years in metastatic CRPC. Again, it's been clinically used since uh, August 31st, 2012. So has a long uh, history of use now. So, so uh, an FDA approved for non-metastatic July 13, 2018. So it's been FDA approved in, our, in the uh, non-metastatic space for less than a year. Median metastasis-free survival, 36.6 uh, and 14.7 respectively. Uh, you see the hazard ratio, p-value, it's generally well tolerated. Side effects are fatigue, falls, and hypertension. Seizure risk is less than 1%. Uh, ischemic heart disease, 2.7%. Clinical significance is unknown. And the only reason I, I want to try to be fair and balanced, obviously, in comparing apalutamide and enzalutamide, currently... Uh, Enzalutamide has a, a, a mention in the package insert regarding a possible increased risk of ischemic heart disease. Uh, however, an apalutamide does not. But we have to remember that this drug has been on the market a longer period of time with a lot more exposure. So the $64,000 question is that, is this unique to enzalutamide or a class effect? And will this eventually be seen in a low rate with all of these agents? Um, overall cancer-specific survival is not yet proven. Again, very expensive but good insurance coverage. So um, you could argue this is, this is very simple. Apalutamide and enzalutamide are very similar in this space. And this just shows the schema for this particular trial and uh, the characteristics. And I'll just get to the key points here. This was the metastasis-free survival. Again, very similar to that seen with apalutamide. Um, this was, uh, again, looking at the um, PSA progression, um, next use of um, anti-neoplastic agents on the bottom, side effect profile. The one thing that um, is, is not clear, and I'm, I've been trying to keep my uh, ears open, you know, since these agents have come out, is, um, and it may, it's not clear if it's real or just related to the way the trial was designed, and I'd be interested to hear uh, our other faculty's uh, take on this, but when this was reported out, uh, there were deaths that were uh, felt to, uh, you can see here, uh, deaths without documented radiographic progression within 112 days of uh, treatment discontinuation, and you see 32 deaths in the enzalutamide arm and four deaths in the placebo arm. And I re that, that has generated quite a bit of discussion as to what that is. And the $64,000 question still to me is that, is this just a artifact of the way the trial was designed and the way it was asked to be reported out, or 
is this a some minor signal of cardiovascular toxicity? And that's been debated. Um, we don't have any. We don't have anything like this, or it's not reported like this in the apalutamide trial. And the question is, is that just because the way Janssen designed the apalutamide trial, with slight difference, that this might have been seen there if it was reported, or might not have? So I just, as a you know, in fair and balance, I'm putting this up here because it has been discussed in academic circles, both. But, it, uh, but yet I don't want to really say that the drug is worse than the other drug because of this. We just don't know. Finally, darolutamide. Uh, this was um, also reported out at GU ASCO and just was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is, again, um, depending on how you define it, some people are putting this in the third generation category similar to apalutamide and enzalutamide, and um, in the review article that was in the journal Urology by Crawford and colleagues, they called this a fourth generation, mainly because of its slight different mechanism of action. It's not yet FDA approved. The application was submitted to the FDA February 27, 2019, so those who are very familiar with the FDA rules, and I can't remember the exact time period, but the AU, I think, has to act within, what, six months? something like that. So we should be knowing uh, one way or the other fairly soon. The metastasis-free survival in the M0 space was 40.4 versus 18.4. Overall survival is not yet significant by the pre-specified criteria. However, as I'll show you, the p-value is less than 0 0.05. Uh, this does not cross the blood-brain barrier to the same degree as the other agents. And so this is really the key possible differentiator that, uh, you know, Bayer, who's developing darolutamide, believes that this agent may have a superior side effect profile because of this factor. However, none of us outside the clinical trial have had any clinical experience with this drug yet, so there's no way for most of us to know, and even among the trial investigators, you know, even if you enroll quite a few patients on the trial as an individual doctor, you're not going to necessarily have a clear sense on whether we believe this drug is, is, is any better. There's possibly less fatigue, possibly fewer falls, uh, possibly less seizure, but in clinical practice, the impact is yet to be determined and it's an unknown com cost compared to the other agent, but likely will be similarly very expensive. And this just shows some of the other um, uh, slides from the, you know, tables from the paper. And I guess we could, you know, people will be dissecting these three drugs and these three trials. Uh, but this, again, shows the metastasis-free survival endpoint, which these trials look very similar. This is the overall survival curve that is actually in the New England Journal of Medicine article. And um, the hazard ratio is 0 0.71 uh, with a p-value of 0. Point, I think 0.445 or it's close. But again, based on the pre-specified survival analysis in the trial, this is not yet statistically significant. So. Um, so to my knowledge, they, the, the company will probably not be able to yet market this based on a survival endpoint when, when the drug is probably FDA approved. And then this is PSA progression, which looks very similar to the other two agents. Um, 
looking at other survival endpoints. So uh, the final slide on this, uh, again, take-home points on non-metastatic CRPC. Uh, in just over one year, we've had two FDA-approved agents, apalutamide and enzalutamide, and a third agent likely on the way, darolutamide. Most M0 CRPC patients are in urology practices, so urologists really need to know how to identify and discuss treatment options. Now, I just want to mention one other point that I did not delve into on this slide, and that is imaging. It's important to point out that these three trials use standard imaging, bone, standard bone scan and standard CAT scan, and these men did not have distant metastasis for allowing trial entry. But nodal disease was okay. So if you go back to your AJC staging, which we all learned in the past, nodal disease below the bifurcation in the pelvis is not M1 disease. That's N, N1 or N positive disease. So it's important to point out that all these agents can be used legally or under label if the patient has nodal disease. So that's another point that I wanted to make. This Another point is the issue of novel imaging. Uh, you know, at this meeting, and I'm going to be giving a talk this afternoon at the International Prostate Forum uh, with a little bit about the PET imaging. And uh, there's been a couple papers came out recently that seem to suggest if you do novel PET imaging in this space, depending on which of these early studies you look at, up to three-quarters of these patients may have a positive PET. And so, this, so you can look at it two ways. You can say, um, you know, I'm just going to work my patients up the standard way, and I know these agents work. I'm not going to look too hard. Let's keep it pragmatic. We got agents approved. They're going to extend metastasis-free survival and use these agents. Uh, on the other hand, um, you can say, well, I'm not sure. I don't really believe in this stage of disease. I really want to see if these guys have micrometastasis. So you could do, uh, you know, in the United States, you could do Aximin scan, which is the, our only FDA-approved PET, or if you're a European, uh, you know, or uh, a guest or member of the AUA from another country, you may have access to other, uh, uh, you know, PSMA pets. So that's another question that we just don't know the answer to. Um, again, these are generally safe and straightforward to prescribe. Again, we're not talking about some of the oral agents that we use in, that are used in kidney cancer. This is some; these are drugs that urologists can can easily use if they so, if they so desire. Let me, oh, excuse me. Let me go back. Um, can you? I'm not sure what happened there. Um, sorry about that. I don't know how that happened. Okay. So. Um, Again, all these agents delay metastasis-free survival to a very significant degree, but overall survival may, remains unproven. You know, it's unclear which agent is best. They're all very good drugs in our toolbox. They're all very effective, and um, it's obviously going to be up to you as the individual clinician which of these agents is your go-to drug. Uh, the agents are very expensive. Uh, however, in the United States, they have uh, pretty good drug coverage. So with that, I will stop, and, um, and uh, thanks for the uh, opportunity on that talk. Is Dr. Sweeney here? So uh, not yet. So why don't we, um, let's, Larry, you want to go do back to your other, oh, there he is. <laughs> uh, do you want to take a look, you want to you catch your breath? 
I'll tell you what. Why don't why don't we why don't we let you uh, relax? So, uh, but uh, we'll, what, what, do you want to go to your next uh, session? Then and we'll go back. Uh, Sorry, everyone. I put the wrong time on my phone. I did time. You know, he's a medical oncologist. Well, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, you know, always delaying the We want to save the best for last. Okay, so. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is talk about M, uh, M1 CRPC. So since 2010, when we had this renaissance development and uh, approval of these new drugs, we now have six new agents in MCRPC. So when a, uh, you know, the first one that was really approved was docetaxel way back in 2004. And urologists back then, even medical oncologists, we didn't get too excited about it uh, because we didn't really have too many things in our toolbox. ADT had been working for us. I mean, we had patients living on, you know, ADT that had biochemical recurrence. And the only thing that we had for metastatic CRPC, there were some other drugs, uh, mitoxantrone, which was uh, really uh, not much better than placebo. But docetaxel was the first one. It had about a 2.4-month survival advantage. But again, you know, I remember in my own practice, I would refer the patient to the oncologist. The oncologist would say, well, the patient hasn't progressed enough yet. And then, uh, you know, the patient would come back, and then they would really start to progress and get really ill. And I sent them back to the oncologist, and the oncologist says, you know, they're, 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 too, they're too ill for, for chemo. So it was, you know, so that was going back and forth in that period of time, and so we weren't too excited about it. And, uh, you know, medical oncologists uh, were busy with other patients. There really wasn't too much excitement in metastatic CRPC. And then 2010, that's when that was the, the, uh, uh, the, the milestone. We had all of this new development. We had approvals. And the, uh, we had novel hormonal agents, Abby and enzalutamide, radium, uh, 223, and CYP-T. And CYP-T was really the first one to get approved. It was April of uh, 2010. And that was the first immunotherapy in an adult solid tumor to show a, a survival advantage. And all of these were approved on overall survival. And then uh, along came uh, Abby, uh, and uh, cabazitaxel was also approved in 2010 in patients who had progressed on uh, docetaxel. And then we had Abby that uh, got its uh, first indication, uh, Abby and Enza, in the post-docetaxel uh, uh, spectrum, uh, and then ra radium-223 was approved in uh, August of 2013. So this is the treatment landscape. Uh, we have just talked about the uh, non-metastatic CRPC, but you can see all these drugs where they were approved uh, for MCRPC, and enzalutamide is the one that's approved in both non-metastatic and metastatic uh, CRPC. And we also had uh, these agents for uh, prevention of skeletal-related events like denosumab and zoledronic acid, and they were part of the, uh, the new generation of, of uh, therapies uh, that were approved in MCRPC. So the androgen signaling pathway is still a key driver in prostate cancer growth and proliferation. Uh, it's not the only mechanism, but is one of the key uh, mechanisms involved in prostate cancer. So 
medical, uh, the disease progression despite medical or, or surgical castration really signals the emergence of a prostate cancer phenotype that can uh, proliferate, survive and proliferate in a low androgen environment. And several mechanisms have been identified to account for the ability of these tumors to, to grow despite castration. Uh, and we have adrenal and intratumoral androgen biosynthesis. We, we learned in that period of time that the tumor, once it gets deprived of all this androgen, it figures out how to manufacture its own androgen. And then there was AR gene amplification and overexpression, AR mutations, splice variants, uh, and we'll talk briefly about that because there's a test available. There are a number of different uh, resistance mechanisms. ARV7 is probably the most abundant out there. Uh, and then there are alterations in co-activators and co-repressors. So let's talk about ABI. It's an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor. It uh, is a 17 lyase inhibitor and it blocks the production of androgen in, test, in the uh, testes, the adrenal gland, as well as the tumor itself. It's given as uh, four 250 milligram uh, ca uh, tablets uh, along with prednisone, and I'll explain why it has to be given with prednisone. Uh, and there are now, there's now generic ABI available. So why do we have to administer uh, prednisone? Well, we're blocking uh, the uh, pathway at 17 lyase, and that decreases cortisol. So when you don't have cortisol, you uh, don't have that uh, negative feedback uh, in the pituitary, and you get increased ACTH, uh, and that opens up the pathway for mineralic corticoid. So by adding prednisone, what you do is you suppress that ACTH and you block that uh, mineralocorticoid effect. So this was the first uh, trial to show effectiveness, efficacy for ABI. It was in the Cougar 301 in the post-docetaxel space, and it was approved on overall survival. There was about a 4.6-month uh, uh, survival advantage. And, you know, at this point, uh, the urologists weren't adopting it that well because we had to add prednisone. We were all real nervous about that. We'd never done that. And then you have to monitor these patients. Actually, uh, when Dr. Mel uh, talked about some of the side effects, uh, you can get transaminitis uh, and hypokalemia. So the label says that you need to monitor every two weeks for the first three months. You're looking at uh, uh, hypokalemia as well as transaminitis. And uh, then every month uh, after three months uh, thereafter. And so there's a lot of uh, monitoring and urologists were a little nervous. We'd be sending our patients, they had to have a docetaxel first. And so the oncologist would be seeing these patients, and in many cases, they would go ahead and start the patient on ABI. But the, the trial that, that uh, uh, really created more widespread use of ABI was in the Cougar 302, and that was in the, in the chemo-naive state. And again, there were co-primary endpoints for this. It wasn't just overall survival, it was radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. And this was the first trial to really use co-primary endpoints. And it allowed us for the first time uh, to 
demonstrate that radiographic PFS was a meaningful endpoint, and it could be correlated to overall survival so that we could uh, speed up the development of drugs, and it wouldn't take as much time as it would when you're looking at overall survival. And so this would get drugs approved uh, sooner and get them to our patients sooner. Uh, so it, when we looked at the uh, secondary endpoints, uh, they were also positive. And so when we look at the co-primary or the uh, endpoint of overall survival, there was a 4.4 month survival advantage, significant hazard ratio. And when we looked at radiographic progression-free survival or death, uh, there was a significant improvement in uh, the delay to, uh, to progression. So the adverse events of special interest, we kind of looked at this, uh, you know, we have uh, fluid retention, hypokalemia, hypertension, uh, as well as the uh, increased uh, uh, trans, uh, the, uh, the enzymes in the, in the liver. Now, enzalutamide uh, is a androgen receptor inhibitor. And as Dr. Mall pointed out before we had, what do we call them, first generation and second generations, those were like flutamide and then we got to bicalutamide, so I guess we consider this the third generation. But it is a androgen receptor antagonist that really works. And what it does is it works at multiple steps in the androgen signaling pathway. So in the tumor self, it uh, it, it binds, inhibits binding to the uh, receptor in the cytoplasm uh, and inhibits translocation in the nucleus as well as inhibiting uh, DNA uh, uh, interaction and downstream signaling uh, so that, or transcription, downstream transcription. And so you get uh, decreased uh, tumor volume decreased uh, proliferation and then apoptosis of tumor cells. So this is a very effective uh, inhibitor. And the primary endpoint uh, was, met, it met its primary endpoint in the AFFIRM trial. Again, this was another post-docetaxel trial. But this was a little easier for urologists to get their hands around because you didn't have to have other monitoring. We were used to using the, uh, the first and second generation uh, anti-androgens. And so uh, the first approval was in uh, August of uh, 2012. And then the PREVAIL trial, that's in the chemo-naive space, and this is really where we see uh, more use of this. Uh, uh, and the, also it had co-primary endpoints of radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. And it hit all of these endpoints, uh, and it was approved in uh, August of uh, 2014 in that space. Uh, so it's given as um, four 40 milligram tablets with or without food. Abby can only be given in the in the uh, uh, in the uh, fasting state, so you couldn't take that with food. So this one was easier to administer. We see a significant overall survival advantage and a pretty dramatic uh, advantage in progression-free survival, uh, an 83 percent reduction in the risk of, of uh, progression. Now, some of the adverse events of interest, and I think uh, we went through uh, some of these, but uh, fatigue, hypertension, falls were higher uh, in the enzalutamide-treated patients. And the, uh, even though they were higher, you could see that they didn't have real high grade three and four 
uh, other than the fatigue. And then as far as the seizure risk, in the first trial, the AFFIRM trial, we had seven patients that experienced a seizure uh, with none in the placebo group. There were patients that were admitted into the study that uh, may have been at risk for, for developing seizures. But when we had the PREVAIL trial and all these other subsequent trials, uh, the signal is pretty low still, but it's there. Uh, but you can see that when we looked at the PREVAIL trial, enzalutamide uh, and placebo uh, just had one seizure in each of those groups. And uh, another th thing that has emerged is the um, uh, this ischemic events, uh, and that was really post-marketing. Uh, and as, as Dr. Mall pointed out, you know, this drug has been approved uh, since 2012, and it's been used uh, quite frequently. And this that was just another signal that was picked up. So CYP-T, uh, it's an autologous cellular immunotherapy against prostatic acid phosphatase, and it's an antigen that's really on most uh, prostate cancer cells. And it's indicated for asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients. Uh, what's involved here is a leukophoresis, and what we're doing is uh, we're drawing the uh, immature APC cells, antigen-presenting cells in white blood cells, uh, and that's done through a leukophoresis. Uh, it's sent to the manufacturer, and two or three days later, uh, the product is uh, ready to infuse. Patients get uh, three infusions two weeks apart. But what uh, is done is that these APCs are cultured with uh, a, uh, a fusion protein of PAP and GMCSF, which is an immune modulator. And they take up this recombinant antigen on the surface of the APCs, the, uh, the um, antigen-presenting cells, antigen-presenting cells. And uh, so this is uh, the product that you get is CYP-T, uh, and it's infused back into the patient, and it stimulates these T cells to become active. Uh, against tumor on the uh, prostate cancer cell. And this was the original IMPACT trial that got the registration for uh, CYP-T, 512 patients were randomized two to one to get Provenge, or the uh, CYP-T uh, versus a, a placebo control. And uh, what they found was that it improved overall survival by about four months. And so it was approved based on, on that uh, study. Now, this is a retrospective analysis. It's post hoc, but it was done uh, by uh, going back into the impact trial and separating out quartiles of PSA. And, and this was reported by Shellhammer in 2013. And what they found was that if your PSA was lower, uh, and, and you know the, the median PSA here was about 52, uh, in the lowest quartile of PSAs less than 22, those patients had a 13-month survival advantage. And even when you go all the way over to the other end of the spectrum uh, at uh, PSAs of 134 and greater, there still was an advantage of 2.8 months, but it wasn't quite as, as good as it was when you use it earlier. So I think the, the take-home message here is that uh, we probably want to get this in up front when patients don't have a high burden of disease and they're minimally symptomatic, and that's where you'll get your best overall survival advantage. So how do I sequence 
uh, these drugs, this is 2019, first thing I do is we treat bone health. So once patients get started on ADT, we uh, start calcium and vitamin D. I didn't put exercise in here, but that's very important. We recommend that for our patients. We'll get a DEXA scan. And then if they need anti-resorptives, if they have osteoporosis, then uh, we have oral IV and uh, bisphosphonates as well as denosumab in lower doses. Uh, if patients uh, are in the metastatic CRPC space, uh, and we have significant metastases, depending on the, the, the burden and the uh, location, then those patients can be treated for SRE prevention with uh, monthly zoledronic acid, 4 milligrams, or monthly denosumab 120. And the other thing that we really look at, I uh, am the director of our clinical research program. We have a very, very robust uh, program. So I always look for clinical trials for our patients, no matter what phase of the disease they're in. And that's really recommended by the NCCN. But I will usually start with CYP-T. I want to get that on as early as possible. And then we go on to our orals, uh, which can be Abby or Enzalutamide. Uh, there is a new test available, the ARB7, uh, to uh, check to see whether or not they're positive for this. If patients are positive for ARB7, then they're not going to respond to either one of these orals. So when I'm considering a switch, that's when you could consider uh, using that test. Now, it's not on any of the guidelines yet, but it has been approved. And then we can layer in radium. Uh, and uh, sometimes these patients are progressing enough to where uh, we're going to start them on docetaxel once they progress on either Abby or enzalutamide. But there's a window of when you want to try to get radium in because you want to be able to try to get all uh, six uh, infusions. That's where you get the survival advantage. Uh, and so you want to get it at a window that they're not going to need uh, to have docetaxel uh, on board. And then uh, if they progress on docetaxel, we have cabazitaxel, and there are a number of clinical trials that we're putting patients on for PARP inhibitors and checkpoint inhibitors. But this is something I'm going to talk about in a little bit, and that's to consider MSI high. Uh, it's a DNA uh, mutation uh, in, in the tissue that uh, this has an agnostic approval. So any solid tumor that has uh, MSI high in the uh, in the tumor, it qualifies for pembrolizumab. So I'm going to now switch gears and talk about uh, genomics and prostate cancer, uh, and then some of the other therapies. Now we don't have enough time to get into a real detailed explanation of of uh, the genomics, except that uh, it's a segue into my next uh, presentation. Now, genomics is. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not coming, it's already here. Our oncology, uh, oncologists are using genomics in breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and we've learned a lot in the past few years about uh, genomics in prostate cancer. And although it's in its infancy, it's here, and it, I kind of liken this to the 2010 when we started using all these new therapies. And so uh, Judd and I were at a uh, Philadelphia Prostate Cancer Consensus Consortium a few years ago, and we're trying to decide 
how to use genomics, uh, who should get genetic, genetic testing, what kind of tests need to be uh, uh, used, and, um, and whether or not to incorporate genetics counselors. So this thing is evolving right now, but it's here, and it's something that we're using. Um, and when we look at DNA repair alterations, it can be somatic or germline. And these are some, uh, some papers, landmark papers that were written. Uh, Robinson on the left here, you can see 20, uh, looking at tissue, they found that 23% uh, of metastatic CRPC patients harbor these DNA repair alterations. And the frequency of the alterations increases with disease progression. And this is something you can find in the tumor themselves. And then the other uh, paper that was uh, landmark was that by Pritchard, where they looked at men with uh, metastatic uh, prostate cancer, and these were unselected. So, you know, we're, there's a little bit of confusion. We talk about DDR and HRR. These are DNR repair uh, damage genes or homologous recombinant repair genes, and, and they use that interchangeably. But these are all the different genes, uh, mutations that we're looking at. And so what Pritchard did, was they looked at men unselected. That means that they weren't, uh, they didn't have germline testing and they weren't thought to have uh, germline uh, issues, but 11% of those men, or almost 12%, had germline alterations uh, when they tested these men. And even it was seen in patients with localized disease, not only metastatic, but localized. So there was an incidence there. Now this population was in, in the state of Washington. So it may differ if you go to different parts of the country. You know, there are, uh, you know, different populations that may be, uh, have, uh, that may have more germline mutations. If you go to New York City, uh, and if you test the Ashkenazi uh, Jewish population, you probably see a higher incidence of this. So, uh, you know, this is evolving. We don't know exactly how many patients, but it is, uh, you know, uh, it, it is in between that 12 and, and 25%. So why is it important to test for germline mutations? Well, these patients have a poor prognosis and early age of onset. There are implications for future therapies. Today we're using, we're looking at PARP inhibitors, platinum as well as PD-1 inhibitors, and there may be other therapies available uh, as time goes on. But it also has implications for family members. So that uh, when we're doing these uh, testing, you know, if, if a, a man has a BRCA uh, uh, gene abnormality, uh, if their daughters have that, then they may want to get tested earlier for breast cancer, uh, screened for breast cancer, or even for ovarian cancer. So we know that it's pretty prevalent, the BRCA2, which we see in men uh, with metastatic prostate cancer, it's pr it can be pretty prevalent in, uh, in uh, women with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So. How do we use DNA repair as a therapeutic target? Well, we know that, that the BRCA1 and 2 and PALB proteins uh, repair double-strand DNA breaks. And when the gene for either protein is mutated, the change can lead to errors in DNA repair that can eventually cause uh, cancer. Uh, PARP1 is a protein that is important in repairing single-stranded breaks, and drugs that inhibit PARP cause multiple double brand strikes and uh, breaks, and because of this, uh, these double strand breaks, uh, they can't be efficiently repaired and you get cell death. So let's look at PARP and checkpoint inhibitors. So this was really the study that got the buzz and uh, going for uh, Olaparib. 
there was the TOPARP study. It was a small study, 49 patients, reported by Mateo uh, in 2015 from the Royal Marsden. You know, if you have a small study like this and it gets into the New England Journal, it means there's something significant about it. But what they found was that a third of the patients uh, responded to to uh, olaparib, and these were unselected patients. And so what they did was went back and analyzed the genomics of all of these tumor samples in all of the patients. And what they found was that in 33% of the patients, they had these DNA repair uh, pathway mutations, such as ATM, BRCA2, PALB. And of those patients who had those abnormalities, uh, the, in the, the responders, 14 of these patients had a response, whereas in the uh, 33 patients, or two-thirds of the patients that had no mutations, they actually had a response into those patients. So uh, we do see responders without these DNA repair uh, mutations. And so when we talk about biomarker positive and negative, you know, we're talking about whether they had these DNA uh, mutations. And what they found was that there was a uh, advantage uh, or benefit with olaparib in patients uh, who were biomarker positive in both RPFS and OS. And so this has led to now uh, looking at uh, more and more trials with olaparib and uh, these PARP inhibitors. And there's also some indication in preclinical studies that if you have, uh, uh, you combine this with a next generation AR targeted therapy, that there may be some synergy uh, to uh, using both drugs, and it may enhance AR signaling, and it may induce this BRCA-ness, this maybe if they don't have that, it may uh, induce this uh, and make these patients more responsive to a PARP inhibitor. And so this was a study that was reported by Clark uh, in, uh, Noel Clark in, at ASCO last year, and it was combining a uh, olaparib and abiraterone, and you see this synergy. And what they found uh, here was what they did was they took patients who had metastatic CRPC, they had at least two lines of prior chemotherapy, but no first, uh, no second generation antihormone, uh, anti-hormone agents, and they randomized them to uh, uh, placebo and ABI versus olaparib and ABI uh, plus their ADT. And what they found was in a, a delta of 5.6 months, there was a RPFS outcome improvement uh, in these patients who were unselected, and uh, there was no overall survival advantage seen, uh, even though there was RPFS. So now we're looking at an ongoing trial, it's called the PROPEL trial, and they're looking at using the combination in unselected patients. So you don't have to be BRCA positive or have any of these DDR mutations or HRR mutations. And this is given as the first line. So once they get diagnosed with metastatic CRPC, once they have progressed, then you can use this combination first line and they're unselected, they have biomarker negative disease. And you see this whole plethora now of uh, different agents that are being used. Uh, they have uh, about four or five PARPs out there. Uh, there's a similar trial that I just described using uh, enzalutamide plus or minus talazoparib, unselected patients, first-line therapy. And there's another study uh, that's not on this list here that is looking at a similar trial design of um, 
Abbey plus or minus olaparib in the first line setting. And you can see that we have rucaparib, neuraparib. They're used uh, when they're used as single agents. You have to be uh, DDR positive or HRR uh, positive. Uh, but there are ongoing trials of this. And the important thing is that olaparib and rucaparib, uh, olaparib is approved in ovarian and breast cancer. Rucaparib is, is approved in ovarian cancer. Uh, but the uh, both of those drugs got breakthrough designations this year, meaning that they're on the fast track for metastatic CRPC. So we'll probably see these things in the, in the next year uh, or two. And what about adding a, a, uh, a checkpoint inhibitor to a PARP? Well, there's some preclinical evidence to show that if you have uh, BRCA uh, mutations, uh, that there may be an increased mutation load, there may be an upregulation of PD-1 or PDL one and the higher the mutation load, you may get some response from a checkpoint inhibitor. So you can see all these trials, there are no, you know, I don't even have them all listed, but they're looking at all the different checkpoints, Trivalumab, Pembro, Nivolumab, uh, and even this new one from uh, Centrelumab. In combination with PARPs, these patients are going to have to be uh, DDR, HRR positive uh, in order to get into these trials. So there is another type of a DNA abnormality that I talked about, uh, remutation, and that's microsatellite instability high. So why is this important uh, in 2019? Well, there's an approval of a drug, no matter what the, the solid tumor type is, that we can use pembrolizumab, including in prostate cancer. So when you get patients that have progressed on everything else that we have, we have this in our toolbox. Now again, it's not, granted, it's not very common. It's more common in colorectal cancer uh, and some of these other cancers that are listed. But in this trial, what they found was that uh, out of the two patients that had it, the one patient had a, uh, uh, a 10-month uh, improvement in, in uh, progression. And it's estimated that there may even be 2% of localized prostate cancers may harbor this uh, abnormality. And in patients with MCRPC, it may be 5 or 6%. Uh, and so this suggests that maybe we ought to be testing our men uh, with MCRPC for this. I can tell you from my own experience, uh, again, this is a very uncommon uh, 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 genetic abnormality, but I've had two patients in the last year. Uh, and one uh, came to me from uh, outside of Denver, and he was started on it by an outside oncologist. I don't have any follow-up on him, and that was probably about nine months ago. But one of my own patients, uh, who uh, is about six or seven months out, he has stable disease. And these are patients that are end of the line. We don't have anything else for them. So there, there's something uh, that we have in our toolbox now. So what about uh, future directions? We just talked about hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. That's been a big change this year. Uh, we have standard of care with charted stampede and latitude using docetaxel or abiraterone. Uh, there's some trials they're going to read out. Uh, Chris, is Enzymet going to be at uh, ASCO? And the plenary. And the plenary, okay. So, 
So that's going to read out. I don't know if you uh, want to say anything about it, but that is looking at enzalutamide. Uh, it's a similar trial design to ARCHES. ARCHES read out. It was positive. So I think that based on those two studies, we may see that approved this year in hormone-sensitive disease. And then, as I mentioned, we have ARCHES. Uh, and I mean, we have uh, Titan and Aerosins looking at apalutamide and daralutamide. Uh, I think uh, the, the Titan study is going to be presented at GU ASCO, at ASCO not GU, ASCO next month. And I think that is going to be a positive trial. And then it's going to take a while to find the, uh, the daralutamide. We all, we have trials uh, in active surveillance. So the ENACT trial looking at uh, enzalutamide. Uh, in active surveillance that closed to accrual. We're just waiting for a readout. We'll probably get that in the next year. And a new trial started this last year looking at CIPT in the active surveillance space. And then when it, it comes to high-risk localized disease, we already saw that Stampede, uh, the evidence shows that you can use uh, abiraterone that is effective. And there's going to be some readouts of Enzorad and Atlas, and they're looking at uh, radiation plus or minus Enzorad would be with uh, enzalutamide and atlases with apalutamide. So we have a lot of exciting things that are uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the platform. And even looking at biochemical uh, failure patients, Embark has been closed to, uh, to enrollment, but it's going to read out probably in the next year or two. And this is going to give us an answer to the question, can we use enzalutamide as a substitute for all of our conventional ADT. So that's going to be an important uh, study. Uh, and, you know, we've always tried to figure out what can we do. Patients hate ADT. Uh, do we have anything that we can substitute? And we may have enzalutamide. So we're getting, making developments in genomic and serial uh, profiling. We have uh, an, a predictive biomarker, ARV7, is here, and there are more coming. Uh, and I mentioned to you some of these combinations looking at uh, not only checkpoints alone or PARPs alone, but combining these. So uh, we are in very exciting times now. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things going on in development, and there's more coming. So thank you, and I'm going to turn this back over to Judd, and I think we're going to hear from Dr. Sweeney. Thanks, Chris. Okay, let's go and have, uh, we're going to have Dr. Sweeney. I know we, uh, we're running a little bit behind. We're going to try to leave some time for questions, and we'll stay here after, uh, I know the course officially ends at 930, but we had a couple delays that was, were due to, uh, to us, so we will uh, we'll do uh, questions. We'll try to leave about 10 minutes for questions, if that's okay. Uh, Professor Sweeney, Dr. Sweeney is uh, another good friend and colleague. We've been blessed to do this course for the last couple of years. Uh, Chris is a very well-regarded and uh, highly cited medical oncologist, uh, GU medical oncologist in the Harvard system and works at Dana-Farber. And uh, uh, his uh, continuing, he's been the uh, principal investigator on Chartered and uh, uh, continues to do fantastic work in the field. Chris? Thanks, John. Excuse me. A million apologies. I set the wrong time in my phone, like East Coast time, so apologies. So I think prostate cancer like a test game now. So choosing which piece of play, it determines what we should be doing in 2019. Sometimes you move the pawn, sometimes you move the rook. And how do you choose which one to move first? 
So my charge was to give the, the how do, as a medical oncologist, the injectables, the parentals, what do we do? So here is radium. It shows an improvement in overall survival. And on the right side, we see it improves time to skeletal-related events. Patients feel better with a, with a relatively simple agent. So when we give these drugs, we worry about their toxicity. And what we can see on the left is that it's not that much more toxic than placebo in this patient population. We have a little bit more, a little bit of um, lower white counts, but we're not putting patients in the hospital with neutropenia and neutropenic fever and a little bit of diarrhea. So it's a relatively toxic agent and patients live longer. The biggest issue about it is how do we find the right patients? So if a patient is like late stage castration resistant, multiple bony metastases, they're not the patients who benefit. They get four, three doses before you switch because they, they're just clearly progressing. So, but the patients who benefit are those who get six doses. So we have to choose our patients carefully for radium. And what are the predictors of who can get six doses? The patient there, it's actually in the eye of the beholder, but we know this. It is, they've had more than three agents in their castration resistance. They have a low performance status, they have pain, they have a low hemoglobin, and just the biochemical parameters that we know patients are sick. So these are patients who we should not be giving radium to because they get it too late. So we should get it before these events happen. And so the notion that patients who have really active bone disease and they're too sick, as evidenced by an elevated alkaline phosphatase, alkaline phosphatase, ALP, you can see they actually do better. So there's a sweet spot. So a person with active bone disease, alkaline phosphatase up, give it before you cannot give it, is the message I make about that. So it does not cause cancer reductions. Patients do not have a response to it, but they do it's have stabilization of the disease. It, it stuns the cancer. So when you give it when they have a lower symptom burden, so you can get all six doses in. So when it came out for the first time, for example, we, only, we were only able to give it to 40% of the patients at Dana-Farber. But with time, we, it was more available, we could give it before they were later in the cancer journey, and we got it up to 60%. And the, literally, I think, most patients and most practices get 60% of the radium in. But should we be giving it with abiraterone? It makes sense. Hormones plus or minus a DNA damage repair agent, we're going to do better. But this is a study called ERA223, which actually was really important for telling us we shouldn't do ad hoc therapies. Here is evidence. Red is bad. Red is the placebo. And we never want to see the placebo on top of the, bl of the blue. And here, red is on top of blue here, showing that patients had more skeletal related events with the combination. 
and overall survival was not improved. Red on top of blue is not good. Just to be very clear about that. And so what was happening is there were more skeletal-related pathologic events which were problematic, but they were osteoporotic events. So who's ever had a patient admitted to the hospital with a crush fracture of their L3, for example, or L4? Who's been had a patient admitted with a neck femur fracture? These are very troubling quality of life and actually potentially lethal events. So, do not give apiridone with radium, is the message. Non-cancer-related, skeletal-related events, like a pathologic fracture of the neck of femur, is a very big problem. So, make sure, as the Simple Minds song, Don't You Forget About Me, says, give your bone target agent when you give radium or abiraterone. Don't forget about them. So where do we stand with anti-resorptive therapies in 2018? Here we see blue on top is giving denosumab versus zometa. We showed there was a benefit with this new agent. But the question is when? So now we have patients who are in the CRPC cancer journey where their life could be possibly five years or longer. So do you give it with abiraterone for five years? Do you give it with radium? Do you give it with docetaxel? So we looked at our database, the Dana-Farber, and on the left you can see the top part of this panel that it doesn't matter in our experience when you gave it with first-line CRPC. But in patients who have four or more bony metastases or the second-line setting, it did matter. So the notion is, okay, a person with a PSA 5, three bony metastases, no pain, maybe just give them the abiraterone alone for two years. They'll progress, unfortunately, but then give the enzalutamide, the dose tax, the radium, and then give the bone target agent at that stage. But if they present with five bony metastases, they're symptomatic, give everything up front. This is not evidence-based medicine. It's, it's like our experience. So I will give a patient who has four bony metastases, they're symptomatic, and I will give it together with the first-line agent. But, and I'll give it two years, and if they're having a great response, I will give them a treatment break because you start to get the osteonecrosis and the issues. On the other hand, if a patient has two bony metastases, they're going to be responding for a long time to apiraterone, I will sequence it. I will give it with the second-line therapy and give it for two years. There is evidence that giving abiraterone, uh, sorry, a bone target agent like Zometa or Denosumab, with abiraterone does matter in a post-hoc analysis, but that's an extremely, extremely biased analysis. So my approach is be judicious in it, give it for two years, but work out which patients, other patients are going to give it, be able to tolerate it for two years. And make sure they have the dental review. If you've ever seen a patient develop osteonecrosis of the jaw, you go, oh, that is actually a real problem. Here's an example of giving denosumab or zometa, zolendroic acid, with 
radium. So there is a benefit for a combination, but it's very clear the combination is not with apiraterone. Chemotherapy, it's a four-letter word. No one likes chemotherapy, patients or doctors, but it is an active agent. So the question is, when and how should we give a chemotherapy? I'm not talking about hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So there may have, a patient is now in your clinic, they've had maybe hormones and abiraterone, maybe hormones and docetaxel, and then four years later, they're progressing. So in this scenario, we need to realize who's fit for chemotherapy. They've already explored and had their other agents like radium and entalutamide or abiraterone, but sometimes a patient has high volume disease. They've got liver metastases. And this is where I'm saying the chess game is maybe we should, no, not maybe, definitely, it does not make sense to me to give entalutamide in that setting if they've got high volume liver metastases and they have had entalutamide or apparatus in the hormone-sensitive state, that's when they need the cytotoxic, the AR-independent agent. So, it is clear, docetaxel and cabazitaxel have adverse event profiles. So not everyone can tolerate it. Unfortunately, Prostate cancer is a disease of the elderly, and I cannot prescribe docetaxel to every patient. So, but we can sneak it in. We need to work out who the right patient is. I think we underuse it. So in, the, in France, they would give it to 60% of patients in the day before they had all the hormones. And in the United States, we were giving it to 40% of the patients. We were probably underdosing, the French were probably giving it about to the right number of patients in the day. And this means that the inability to give chemotherapy is basically who, is, who do we feel comfortable with? And this is in the eye of the beholder. So it's frailty scores, neuropathy. But I think we need to be a little bit more proactive about giving chemotherapy than we used to be. Do you remember this? In 20, 2004, like 15 years ago now, this was the biggest breakthrough. We had the, the drug that was docetaxel against the drug that was blue, mitoxantrone, and well, this was a big breakthrough. Modest breakthrough, but we thought it was the biggest thing ever because we had nothing else. So the green line, docetaxel, you live more likely to live longer out of two and three years with giving docetaxel versus mitoxantrone. In that study, they gave 10 cycles of chemotherapy. Do you know why? Because they had nothing else to give. We had nothing else to give. So we just pushed on. But in an era where we have cabazitaxel after docetaxel, radium, if the patient is responding to docetaxel, we have other options. So my notion is, I think, I give about six cycles, I will stop and move over to the other life-prolonging therapy, not wanting to miss the opportunity to give the other life-prolonging therapy.
and I pause there, people ask me a lot around the world, why didn't you go to sick, why, why didn't you give 10 cycles? And I go again, because I didn't have anything else to do, but we now have other things to do. So I will monitor, monitor patients with the AOP, alkaline phosphatase is going up, if they're having some fatigue, they're not tolerating it, I would move over to the other agent. And if they've got bad disease, cabazitaxel is actually a life-prolonging therapy. And actually, I find it a lot, cabazitaxel is a more, much better tolerated than docetaxel. So we gave chemotherapy, and we give chemotherapy. It is bad in terms of it being a chemotherapy, so we don't like the notion of chemotherapy. But if you have cancer pain, but your chemotherapy has some side effects, and you decrease cancer pain and quality of life, patients actually have a quality of life improvement. So you live longer, and you have a quality of life improvement despite chemotherapy. And that's the message in this slide. So then along came the drug cabazitaxel, which was designed to be given after docetaxel because cabazitaxel is not transported by the drug efflux mechanism. So it is not surprising that it works after docetaxel. But the studies were done. Docetaxel versus capacitaxel, first time out. High dose docetaxel, 25 versus 20 milligrams of docetaxel per meter squared, was also done. And these two studies came out at the same time. And the bottom line is there is no difference when you give cabazitaxel up front, but there is a difference and a benefit when you give cabazitaxel after docetaxel. And there's no difference between 25 and 20. So I actually celebrated when I saw these studies and realized I can give 20 milligrams per meter squared without new laster support and patients are going to do well. But the question is, a patient progresses, what the heck do we do with them? They've had and they've had enzalutamide, they've had um, radium, they've had docetaxel, they've had cabazitaxel. What do we do? And as Larry said, we reach for clinical trials. DNA damage repair is coming along. And my challenge was to pick up on what Larry talked about from the MSI defects, the pembrolizumab, the lutetium options, the parental versions. So why are we so excited about the immunotherapy? I'm going to be honest and go, when I counsel a, counsel a patient, and I'm going to do a biopsy, I say, we're going to do this, but let's be very clear. It may not come up with any information because we will not get the right amount of DNA. Two we get the right amount of DNA, you may or may not have a defect. Three, even if I find we find a defect and you're going to possibly have a drug you could give, your response rate is not 100%. So I set expectations. So on the left, Larry pointed out that study that led to the FDA approval of pembrolizumab for anyone who has microsatellite instability. But what they found what we find is that it's very few, about 10%, 2% of patients with prostate cancer actually have that defect. And about 50% of those patients respond. 
So when you biopsy, when you put a needle into a patient to get the tumour, it's about 1% of the patients respond. It's not that high. As much as we're excited about it, it's not that great. On the flip side, CDK12 is a mutation, and it's associated with elevated antigens that you may what a, patients may respond. But again, it's not... It's rare to have the mutation, it's rare to actually get the response. 50%. PSMA PET. Why are we not doing more PSMA-based therapy? Well, the regulatory environment in the United States is much more restrictive than it is in Germany and Australia. So the Germans and Australians have said, okay, we're going to treat these patients. So in another world, they have been doing a lot of lutetium with dotatate in neuroendocrine cancers. And they said, okay, let's just change that and put it with PSMA. What's different about lutetium? It's a beta particle, so it's a little more toxic. It targets more areas of the cancer than prostate, than a, a bone, which radium is limited to the bone. Lutetium goes to many areas. It has a longer range, but it does cause a little bit of myelin suppression. So it's different to radium. But the patients have to have PSMA expression. So here is a study that was done by my colleague. It's actually double F. I apologize for the typo here. So patients had PSMA PET and FDG avidity. Well, sorry, both scans. And what they found is that the PSMA PET positive FDG negative patients had better responses. So when you're FDG positive, you have a poor outcome, but PSMA PET positive, and you have PSMA PET-based therapy with lutetium, there's a reasonable chance of having a response. About 30% have a PSA decline. And even if you have miserable disease like liver and lymph node metastases, there is a response rate. with minimal toxicity. So this is like radium. This is the new era where patients can get an injection of radiation that would bind to a ligand and de deliver the radiation. So as we've experienced with radium, people live longer. Hopefully, this will be the same with lutetium PSMA. And there's a study, who, actually, who in the room actually has uh, the vision study open. It's a really difficult study. So Nevadas has the study, and you have to actually go and fly and get a PSMA PET image to be worked out if you're eligible. So there's a little bit of a horse before the cart right now, the cart before the horse. PSMA PET imaging is not widely available, but hopefully it will be soon. So the biggest challenge about this study is that you have to get a PSMA pet and you may have to fly to get there. Is that your experience too? Right. Yeah, so Larry, he's got this great place. He's in Denver, but he has to send his patients to Los Angeles to get the image. But hopefully that will change. So the, my one take-home message is play the long game. Do, to deploy as many therapies as possible in prostate cancer, and it depends on are they fit for chemotherapy? Not everyone's fit for chemotherapy. 
what is the nature of the disease? Do they have a little bit of bone disease and you can get all your bone targeted agents in like radium? Or do they have visceral metastases where you need to give the cytotoxic chemotherapy? A patient has had a good response to hormones, they're going to probably respond to abiraterone or enzalutamide. If they've had a bad response, you need to get the chemotherapy if they've not had it already. And in this way, we can talk about a five-year response for a patient in this castration-resistant state, but we could start talking about, I think, with all the new data, about a 10-year over-survival in patients with hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And because I set my phone wrong, I'm going to talk about hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, possibly. Can I do this? Good questions. So we're going to, we have uh, about 10 minutes or so. I'd like to uh, really in, in, uh, encourage anybody to come to the microphone if you have questions. Uh, anything is fair game regarding what we discussed. Uh, and even if it's not what we discussed, it's fair game. We just want to see, uh, make sure we address any questions that people have. Yes, yes, sir. Hello, um, Ben Martin, uh, Central High Urology Group in Columbus, Ohio. So I'm in private practice, and I've been to multiple conferences now where it seems to indicate that with docetaxel, you need kind of four cycles before you really see a PSA response. And I've seen the idea that you can get a flare radiographically, lymph nodes especially, can look larger. Again, I refer to community oncologists, and I've seen multiple where they scan after the third cycle. And I don't know if that's just because they like it halfway through the six cycles. And and I see sometimes they're jumping off. They see progression and they change therapy. They might go on to cabazitaxel or something like that. And it's a little uncomfortable for me to go to the oncologist to tell them how to do their job or not. So I, I want to know, is that a discussion I need to have or are they doing things appropriately? <laughs> Well, you know, I think, uh, we, now we have, I really believe this is a multidisciplinary approach that she is. Is that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so we uh, really, you have to have an oncologist on board, radiation oncologist, medical, uh, a uh, urologist. And we have a monthly, uh, we have an ATC clinic, Advanced Therapeutics. We're set up for all of this. We have a monthly tumor board where we have all the uh, representation of the multi multidisciplinary uh, team, and we make these decisions. And I think it's a matter of, you know, this is probably one of the barriers of, uh, of urologist treating. I think you can't be isolated. I think you need to develop a relationship with an oncologist and really have the discussion of how you want to manage these patients. Um, and when it comes to the specifics of, well, you know, do you agree with his management, I think that's where you have to have this relationship to talk. Because in many cases, uh, the urologists do have a, a lot of education, and uh, maybe some of the, the oncologists in your neighborhood aren't as experienced as we are. So I think that it really requires developing an approach with a multidisciplinary team. And uh, so, Chris, I mean, how would you handle that situation? No, it's a really good question, Larry, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, so the medical oncologists you work with in, in the community, they treat breast cancer, they treat colon cancer, this, that, and the other. 
And uh, bone scan imaging is terrible as a disease response. So I have two issues. One, we overtreat on some in some scenarios with prostate cancer, like we give we we bail out way too late, and then sometimes, as you point out, we bail out way too soon. So I th I tell patients and families and co um, my colleagues change therapies at the right time. And so I actually do not do any imaging when a patient is on therapy. If their PSA is going up, I say it's like the canary in the coal mine, and we should do an image at that stage. But if they're responding, they're tolerating drugs, I treat, I continue. If their PSA is going up and they're starting to have symptoms, then I will image. So probably a long-winded answer to say, let's do four cause imaging, not at the end of three cycles. Mm -hmm. Four cause imaging is what I would say to your colleagues. Yeah, I would four. only do a change if there's a, a need for it. I mean, if uh, PSA alone is not a reason to change therapies. I think you need to, as, as uh, Dr. Sweeney said, you need to have symptoms and, and for cause yeah. of looking at imaging and then, and then changing therapies. So that's a key teaching point. I mean, so Chris, you were just saying, so we're clear, for cause imaging yeah. generally in CRPC, not based on some arbitrary three-month, four-month time point. I think that's a really key point. Yes, sir. Uh, good morning. Mark Hirshhorn from Kennebunkport, Maine. It's clear that we should be checking ARV7 prior to switching from ENZA to ABI or back and forth, but should we be checking it prior to using either of those agents? So I'm going to be a little bit um, not liked by people who have the ARV7 assays. I've never checked an ARV7 assay. I think the most important thing is to determine who's going to more likely to respond. Did they tolerate their apparatus and their enzalutamide? And did they respond? And then I will give it. But if a patient has like high volume visceral metastases, they are very likely to be ARV7. And I've never checked an ARV7. I just give the chemotherapy. So no one's actually cl compared clinical assay to clinical judgment. But we know who are the ARV7 positive patients. Judd works with someone, Andy Armstrong, who's been looking at this for the longest time, and Judd's about to kill me. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I think your point is well taken. And, uh, you know, as a urologist, so, so just, just to go back to the multidisciplinary, make a comment. So the way it works in our practice, I mean, I'm, I'm a urologist who does advanced prostate cancer, but I also work in an environment where I have four or five GU medical oncologists who are really good. So I'm walking that tightrope. Um, I manage patients through M0 CRPC and generally refer when they transition to M1 CRPC. That's kind of the agreement we have. Um, but just, and, and so as a urologist, in my own practice, so far I've never yet ordered the ARV7 myself because even Andy says to me there's no, there's, he, he, there's no need for me to order the ARV7 up until you potentially get into his once he gets to M1, but once they but I do know that they got those guys are using it 
in, uh, but again, there's even at Duke, I mean, we have five people, five geo-urological oncologists, and there's different opinions. Larry, what is your opinion well, on ARB7? Well, I know that it is controversial. I w don't use it a lot. I mean, it has only became available this last year. But if I'm going to start a patient on an oral, I'm not going to get a ARB7 before I do that. Now, I'll give you an example of where I used it. I had a patient who was in a clinical trial, didn't know whether or not uh, he was in the MBAR trial, whether or not he received enzalutamide. Mm. He progressed uh, and went off trial, and because of the progression, he, I mean, he had some pretty significant bone disease. Uh, the oncologist put him on, um, uh, he, he was started at that point, he was started on Abbey, and he didn't respond very well to it. Uh, the oncologist then put him on docetaxel. The patient had about three cycles and he said, uncle, I give up. I don't want any more chemotherapy. You got to do something else for me. I just can't take this anymore. So not knowing he'd already been on Abby, I don't know whether or not he received um, the uh, enzalutamide in the, uh, in the uh, Embark trial. Mm -hmm. And so I did an ARB7 on him. This is after he had had three cycles of docetaxel and he turned out to be negative. Now we know that taxanes can convert a positive to a negative. And so at that point I said, okay, I think I have something for you. So it helped me make a therapeutic decision. Again, you know, these are incidences where you have to just look at the, the situation and decide, uh, what, are you gonna make a therapeutic change based on the test that you order? So I think that they're still, you know, it's still early on with the ARB7, and I know that there's a lot of controversy. It hasn't hit the guidelines yet. It's not on the guidelines. It is approved uh, to, for use, but I think that you have to be judicious about how you use these. I was going to ask you guys a question. Uh, Larry gave a nice overview of the, you know, ordering genetic tests in, uh, you know, looking for hereditary mutations in patients with prostate cancer. Uh, in First, in localized disease, maybe ask Larry, in practical terms, when do you order a hereditary gene testing when you have a patient in your practice with localized prostate cancer? Well, localized, I haven't adopted okay. that yet for localized disease, even though it says that patients with localized, there, there is a percentage that do have these germline uh, abnormalities. I will look at family history. I think we need to be better at how we do family histories. You know, classically, we, we take a history and say, oh, is there cancer in the family? We don't really get into it too much. Maybe there's some breast cancer. But I think it involves getting a very good history. What we do in our practice right now as far as genetic testing, again, we're in the infancy of how we're going to be using this. Uh, but because of so many implications involved in genetic testing, you know, it's not just the patient, but it's their family. Uh, there, you know, there was a GINA law that came out 10 years ago uh, that said you couldn't discriminate based on genetic testing as far as getting jobs, but you can't get life insurance if they find out that you have some of these germline abnormalities. So what we do is we have access to genetic counselors uh, and uh, we will send the patient to the genetic counselor and they decide what testing, and they go through the entire informed consent with the patient telling them the, you know, the upside, the downside, what the implications are. And so we feel much better doing it in that setting. Now, that's outside of a clinical trial setting. Now, I have a number of clinical trials, and we are checking these, both on tissue and uh, in blood. Uh, and uh, so that makes a difference as far as, uh, you know, the clinical trials. But now that we have MSI high, uh, I 
can order that, and there are ways to do it through Foundation Health. Um, Foundation One, you can get all the genetic testing. They now have a cell-free blood-based test. Uh, these are expensive. They're about $6,000. I don't know if the uh, payers are covering it. Um, but uh, that's what we're doing. And then we are doing tissue testing in patients that I'm going to make a difference. Uh, it's going to make a difference in their therapy if I have something to mm -hmm. offer them. And Chris, uh, so mm -hmm. to pick up on Larry's point, what he said, the key point at, at the beginning was you only do a test if you're going to do something about it. So if you've got a, a sniff that there's a genetic variant in the family, you, I send the patient to genetic testing. So high-risk prostate cancer in the men in his 40s and 50s, I'm more likely to send them for genetic counseling. And I'm, it's not going to really change what I do for that patient. I'm going to send them to surgery. But it's the cascade testing. It's the family that's beyond the patient. Are the kids going to get tested? Have they got a risk? And it's a very emotional issue about whether they should get tested and whether if they're positive, what are they, what's going to happen to them and their kids? So it's not just a random send-off for a $200 color test. So genetic testing is not, germline genetic testing is a lot cheaper than it used to be, but it's still not emotionally less stressful. Mm -hmm. The uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Is there anybody else in the audience who has a question? I mean, we really wanted to make sure People got their questions answered. I think we have time for one more question. John Miller from Binghamton, New York. Just a, maybe a question, and you've alluded to it a little bit with your, your recent discussion on the, the uh, sequencing, particularly when we're looking at the Abbey and Zulunamide switching back and forth versus going toward an earlier level possibly of docetaxel or, or chemotherapy. And in our group also, we, we manage the patients until they're M, through M0, and then when they get to the point of M1 and or progressing N1, then we would switch them over to oncology. But uh, just if there was a, a take-home message as far as, is there an advantage to consider switching without any special testing, or is it better to, if you get to that point and earlier than later, move to the docetaxel avenue? So if a patient has re responded really well to the hormones, I will do the hormone switch. Not, there's no data to support that, but there's anecdotes and Larry, John, myself. <laughs> have had patients respond really well to enzalutamide after abiraterone. But there are patients who are very unlikely to do that, and I just, I just don't do it. I go to chemotherapy or radium. So, who, I, I to, so just for clarity, so just so I can, so you, so how, to answer John's question, so how, so how do you know when to switch from, when you say they've responded really well, so. Six months longer. So if you have a guy who's been on Abbey, say six, you know, six, 12 months, done well, and then he starts to get some progression, you would generally switch that patient to another oral agent before going on to docetaxel. I do, and it, there's no data to support that. So, but if a patient, let's, the extremes, a patient, they come in, they progress with a peer, rising PSA at six months on abiraterone, and they really didn't benefit. But the patient is like two years later, the PSA's gone from 0.2 to four, that's the patient I would give, enzalutamide. Okay. I don't need an ARV7 to tell me that patient's more likely to respond. You know, and I, I agree, you can do that. You can make the switch. Uh, you know, the argument is, okay, why start a patient? And, uh, we, you know, the ARV7 test, 
uh, is probably about $4,000. And it's probably not going to get reimbursed. Um, if you start another line of therapy, that's going to be $10,000 or $20,000 before you figure out if they're going to respond or not. So, I mean, there you, you can yeah. look at it in that sense. But I think, uh, you know, just to get back, if a patient is really progressing rapidly, I'm not even going to go to that next oral. I'm going to go right to, to, uh, to chemotherapy. If they have symptoms and they're progressing rapidly, I won't mess around with it. But in, in, in the scenario that Chris describes, uh, I think it's reasonable to try the other agent. We do know that usually you're not going to get as good a response. You may get a response, but it's not going to be as long as the first mm -hmm, agent yeah. that you gave. That's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Well, I think we're out of time. They, the people in the back have opened the door, so I think they're giving us a message. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for coming. Uh, appreciate it. Please do your evaluation of the course. And, uh, and like they say at all the car dealers, please give us a five. Uh, <laughs> but again, enjoy the rest of the AUA. Thanks so much. Thank you for continuing to listen to the AUA University podcast. Our podcast can be subscribed to and found on Apple iTunes and on Google Play. Please email education at auanet.org with any feedback or suggested topics. We look forward to hearing from you.